always when we take up this section, it, it, it's not in isolation. We have this unfolding as Paul and Barnabas have begun that first missionary journey. And we know they first went to that island of Crete, and then they traveled back over to the mainland. And in the, still in chapter 13, had ventured to Antioch of Pisidia, which is a different Antioch than the city that they had left from. And in Antioch, we know that though they had preached the word of God faithfully and clearly, what began to happen is antagonism, uh, uh, persecution, mistreatment increased to where they were ultimately run out of town. And they go from Antioch, then they move on to the next city to Iconium. And they begin to do the very same thing that got them run out of town. And what we noticed in, in the previous week is there seemed to be an escalation. Threats and malignment, mistreatment and persecution. The, the desire and attempt to throw them out. The desire to stone them. And then eventually, by the time we get later in chapter 14, it's not simply desires and threats, but Paul will actually be stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead. Now, we won't quite get there today, but I want us to, to, to see in the sense of this, because as we've covered different things, there always seems like limited time, which I'm sure you're thankful for. But nonetheless, I want to just go back for a moment to, to say certain, show certain things that I don't want us to miss in the process. As they, in chapter 13, had been preaching the word of God, as it says in verse 44, the whole city nearly gathered together to hear the word of the Lord. It says, but then we saw the jealousy and, the, and they contradicted. They began reviling Paul. But it goes on to say this, and I want you to notice this in verse 46. Towards the end of it, it says this. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Again, we emphasized it last week. I emphasized it today. And I'm telling you, unashamedly, it's going to keep being emphasized. What did they go and speak? The word of God. The message they always delivered was not a message of men. It wasn't a story about themselves. Generally speaking, what's interesting is uh, Paul only gives those accounts of himself in the circumstances where he's arrested and standing before governors and is being called upon to tell why he's doing what he's doing. But when he's put in front of unbelievers... He's not talking about Paul. He's not talking about his journey, his story, his narrative, his experience. You know who he's talking about? Jesus Christ. The word of God prevails and it's constantly referring to the Old Testament and showing how Christ is the fulfillment of it. On the throne of David and so on. And we've, we've seen it beautifully expanding and they, they hear it. It's made clear to them, a few beforehand it had said had even become believers, but as the group gathers together, they revile, they turn, they speak strongly, and then he says this at the end of verse 46, listen, since you thrust it aside. I like, I like the way that's said, it's not that they, you're merely rejecting us. We have set before you the word of God. And what you have done is taken the word of God and thrust it aside. And I always love this because the response 
by Paul and Barnabas here is what? Not what men do today. Let's regroup and figure out a more effective strategy. The word didn't work. Let, 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 let's, let's take a survey what they really want. What, is that what they did? Not at all. When the word of God is thrust aside, they themselves end up being thrust aside and they go on to the next place with the same word, the same plan, the same method, the same strategy. It doesn't change. And the, he even goes on and says this. I'm getting to the end of verse 46 now. You thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. That is an interesting phrase. A powerful phrase. Now listen, if you were to go around and did perform a survey at that moment in time. Do you consider yourself unworthy of eternal life? They would have said, no. I mean, we are in the synagogue. We are the faithful. We're the regular, even the leaders of the synagogue and chiefs of the synagogue. What do you mean? And so there's an interesting nuance wrapped into this. He says, you judge yourselves unworthy. To which they would probably reply, what? We, we don't. And, he, and his answer is, yes, you do. When, when, when you thrust aside the word of God, and, and there's a sense in which I know it's valuable to get this. They need to judge themselves unworthy. They alone are not unworthy. Even those of us who by grace have come to accept and embrace the word of God and the gospel that's given it to us in Christ. We've actually, contrary to them, come to recognize that we are unworthy. Whereas they will still say, hey, hey hold on there. We will say, yes, yes, you are right. We are absolutely Unworthy, and I, and, I, and I remind you of this because of the significance of this idea. In Matthew chapter 8, remember, Jesus was going around and performing a multitude of miracles. And a centurion came to him, or didn't come to him. His centurion's servant was sick. And the, the centurion, a, a, a leader in, in the community of soldiers there, was so clear in his mind... Somehow, by the grace of God, at the importance and significance of Jesus Christ, that actually he doesn't even go to him. He sends some elders of the Jews that he was friends with, and he said, you go to them. And these elders come and they speak to Jesus, and then someone gets the message back to him that Jesus is now headed to his house. And, and he absolutely says, Wait, hold on, and he sends some more of his servants out, basically saying pretty much these words here in Matthew 8.8. 8. The centurion replied through the friends, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. 
that there, there is a reality that happens, and you almost see it laced in the irony of the words of Paul there. You declare somebody unworthy, and some to whom God has revealed the sinful nature of our hearts and the lives that we have led, and also more than that, revealed to us the glory of God in the face of Christ in the gospel, we say, yeah, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy to call your name. I'm unworthy to come into your presence. I'm unworthy to bow my knees. I'm unworthy even as John, we've talked about this before, John the Baptist, Jesus says, was the greatest man born of a woman. That's astounding, you know, and hopefully humbling because it's not us. Now, some of you are saying, well, till that time. <laughs> no, it, but even then, the greatest man in all of those centuries since that. Now, remember, when, when we, you do come to the Hall of Faith, you have all kinds of individuals mentioned there, don't you? Yeah, you've got, you've got Abraham, and then you go on, and you've got Gideon and Samson. You've got all of these people who seem to accomplish great things, significant things, powerful things. By faith, they did this, and by faith, they shut the mouths of lions. John was greater than all of them. And what did John say regarding Jesus? I am not fit. I am not worthy to touch or untie his sandals. I'm not worthy to be the least and lowest servant to him. That's astounding. And we've got to get that clear in our mind. Even Paul says this of himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. And it's a bit of speculation, I admit it, which means you don't put too much weight on it. It's just my sense. I would not be surprised if you were to go back and interview each one of the actual apostles. That they might one by one say, I'm unworthy to be an apostle. I'm unworthy. We, we remember at Gethsemane, we always focus on Peter's denial, but the scripture actually says that all abandoned him and ran away. Peter himself knows of his own denial. And my mind always goes back even to where, where Peter first recognized who he is. You remember where Jesus had said, set out a little from the shore in his boat. And, and, and he taught the people who were on the shore. And then he tells them, hey, let's set out a little more and cast your nets over the side. And Peter, what? You remember in his remarkable experience and practical wisdom that he thought might exceed that of the one standing in the boat, said, we've worked all night and we got nothing. Fish aren't biting. Not going to work. Then he says those beautiful words, but at your word, we will let down the nets. Brothers and sisters, I always hope and pray that for ourselves. How, you know, it seems like if I share the gospel with this person, like every other time, it's just going to be rejected. But at your word, I will share again the gospel. But at your word, I will not stop back because it's not about the seeming outcome. It's about 
obeying his word. Now, in this particular case, what happened? The nets were so filled that they were teared. The boat was so filled with, with, that it began sinking. And what was Peter's immediate response? Depart from me. I'm an unclean. Wait a second. I've always been astounded by that because I'm thinking, man, you're a fisherman. He has just brought you the most profitable haul ever. And you're saying, get away from me. I can't. I'm not worthy. I'm not fit to be near you. Instead of saying, don't ever leave. Tell us every day where to go and where to throw the net. I mean, that would seem like the human response, correct? But what had happened is God had broken through the fleshly, the practical, the human, and revealed to him the spirituality, spiritual reality, that the one who was standing there was no mere man. That indeed he was the son of God. They would get another glimpse of that later when he's asleep in the boat and they're all seeing the storm and says, oh no, we're perishing. Waking him up. Aren't you worried that we're perishing? What does Jesus say? Hopefully you remember it. He says these sweet and patient words with them. Oh, you of little faith. And then he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. And there is still. And they say, what manner of man is this that the wind and the waves obey him? It is one of whom we're not worthy. You know, and and, and it's, it's so valuable because we even know this now. When we go to God in prayer, we don't go because we're worthy. It is through Christ we have boldness. In him we have access. In him is our confidence. So that all of it rests by faith in Christ and who he is and his worthiness. I mean, my mind will never forget even as you work your way through Romans. I mean, Revelation. And there's that scroll in heaven that no one is fit to break the seals. And the scripture says, what does John begin to do? He begins to weep because no one was found that was worthy. And the angel who's with him says, hey, hold on. <laughs> there is one who is worthy. The lion of Judah, the lamb that was slain. Jesus Christ is worthy to break the seals. I, I, listen, beginning to the end of time. There is but one who is worthy in the presence of God. And by grace through faith, we're united to him. Christ in us and us in him. So that we are deemed worthy. Okay. Listen closely to those words. We're not actually worthy. <laughs> we're not actually righteous. We are reckoned righteous we are deemed worthy by virtue of our savior who stands in our stead and he was deemed for a moment as our sin was put upon him unworthy he was deemed unfit and the wrath of god was poured out on him for our sake I mean, it's no small thing. I know this is just the introduction. You're saying that was a long introduction. Agreed. But, and I just want to remind you of this also. 
In Luke 17, 10, it says this of believers who are walking or serving. It gives the example of servant who goes out in the field and comes in. When the servant comes in to the master after working in the field, is the master going to say, sit down and let me serve you? No, he's going to tell the servant who's come in, okay, move on to your next job. Serve the table. And it says these beautiful words that we must never forget in Luke 17, 10. So you also, and this, this, this always, it, it, as it's stated, is just a little bit of a saber to my heart. Because listen to what it says. You also, when you have done all that you were commanded. <sighs> when you've done what? All that you were commanded. Who's done that? Yikes. Let's, let's imagine somehow you did. Even if somehow you did, even if you've snowed yourself into believing that you have. What? You still have to say what? When you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now remember, that's not the totality of all that the scriptures say because the, the pictures and the expressions that the scripture gives us, we're not merely servants. We're also deemed friends. We're also deemed children. We are loved in Christ. So, okay, but, but there is an unhealthy imbalance to always focusing on the loved children because that can get a little puffed up. It's also valuable to note that the scriptures tell us that though that is true and we shouldn't leave that off and we shouldn't be thank, uh, forget that, we should be thankful for it. We still need to remember what we are by nature, sinners, and what we are by grace, servants and children of God. People like the idea of children. Because apparently children can run rampant and be disobedient. And you know what they still are? Children. Whereas a servant can face a lot more problems than the other. Now I want us to move on and at best we can to get into the section that we're dealing with today. From chapter uh, 14. As they came into the town. I've again noted this in Iconium. It says in verse 1. 14, one. They spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Now, the text there can be a bit misleading, so I want to clarify this. Some. They spoke in such a way that a great many believed. Okay, what was the technique? What was the strategy? I mean, they spoke in such a way that many believed. So, they're getting better at this. Is that what it is? No, the, we've got to put it in its context. Where are they speaking? Answer, the synagogue. What generally draws people? Now, remember, this is, this is a first visit to the synagogue. This is not the next week. So this is the more regular synagogue attenders. The more regular synagogue attenders are, are those who valued the law and the prophets. Because the law and the prophets would be read every Sabbath day. And so those who were gathered in that place, they were gathered for a, in a primary sense at the synagogue because they valued the scriptures. 
Do you know how they spoke in such a way that many of those people believed? Let me explain it to you. They spoke according to the scriptures. Among people who value the word of God, it was very easy for them to demonstrate this is what God has promised. If you read through, that is exactly what Stephen does. Arguing from the Old Testament all the way through how it pointed forward, prepared, and culminated in Christ. On the day of Pentecost, the same thing all the way through to David and culminated in Christ. On and on and on, they spoke in such a way. Now, let me say this again. Because their speaking was would have been from the scriptures... And it says this over and over again. Remember, they spoke the word of God. They continued to speak the word of God. They continued to speak the word of God. That's why I'm saying they spoke the scriptures. Listen, it is in this way that people come to believe. It is in this way that sometimes a few, sometimes a great number, but it is in this way that people come to believe. And only in this way. The scriptures say it this way in, in Romans chapter 1. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Correct? So listen. If you don't speak the gospel. If you don't declare the word of God. Will there be salvation? If the fullness of the person and accomplishment of Christ is not declared. Will there be salvation? No. So if they spoke in such a way that many believed, what does that mean? They declared, according to the scripture, the good news as we have it in Christ Jesus. We get to see that filled out. And that's why, uh, for example, this is not new. When Paul was first saved in Acts chapter 9, verse 23, it says this. They're calling him Saul, as you remember. Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews in Damascus. Well, how did he do this? By proving that Jesus was the Christ. I love that because he didn't simply declare. He didn't simply share his opinion. In that context, he could prove it. You believe that the, the scriptures are reliable and they would say... Yes, they are. And yes, we do. Well, listen to what they say. Because it is him they speak of. He proved it. I, lo I love that. The strength of that language. In chapter 6, when Stephen was speaking, it says, They could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. You know why? Because he wasn't just sharing his feelings. He wasn't just sharing his story. He was sharing the truth of God in Christ. Now, what God has done for us, I don't want to minimize that at all. Please don't misunderstand that. If we have limited time to communicate with someone, let's make sure that we communicate Christ rather than ourselves. If we have exceeding amount of time to communicate, we communicate Christ, and then we can also communicate as an example who we were 
apart from Christ and who we now are in Christ by the grace of God. But again, who we were apart from Christ, who we are now in Christ, the focus of all of that still remains Christ rather than us. Paul says all the time, we preach not, we declare not ourselves, but Christ and ourselves as his servants. It's always about making him exalted, him first. They were speaking from the scriptures, Acts chapter 18, which we'll get to at some point. It says, uh, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that, G that the Christ was Jesus. And this is the way that the apostles did it. They showed by the scriptures. Now, I want to acknowledge this to you. We live in a different scenario. Where's the local synagogue? There is not. And in that day, at least in the synagogue, they valued the word of God as trustworthy. We do sadly live in an age and an era where there are similarly churches, people who gather together seemingly to worship God, but not in all such places can you go there and confidently know those who have come here believe the word of God is trustworthy. They believe every word of God proves true. I wish that it were. It ought to be because it is true. And so we can't presume on that. And so we end up spending so much time struggling. But listen, there is no ultimate basis for spiritual truth outside of the scriptures. So do not, do not abandon it. Speak from the scriptures for what they are, faithful and trustworthy. Remember this. As you, as you might feel discouraged, remember these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 18. I mean, chapter 1, verse 18 and following. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and following. For the word of the cross, this is the message of the gospel that we preach, is what? Folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. Wait, the same message to one group of people, it is what? Foolishness. To others, it is the power of God. Now listen, there was once a time that we were all in our trespasses and sin until God by his power made known his truth to us in the gospel. But the, the message doesn't change. The power of God is set forth in this. And so he goes on to say, uh, for it is written. And I love that again. The word of the cross, foolishness to those perishing, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. And then verse 19, for it is written. Oh, that the scriptures are full of, for it is written. Oh, that our, our minds, our hearts, our thoughts, our communication would be filled with, for it is written. Thank you filling in the blank. Um, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of uh, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise one? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, 
the world did not know God through wisdom. So men don't ever know God by figuring it out. Hey, you know, quit, quit bothering me with this whole Jesus thing. Just let me figure it out for myself. Uh-uh. No, because you won't. And neither would we have. Not a one of us would have. Our wisdom will never get us there. The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly or foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. So we keep a preaching. The Jews demand signs. The Greeks, wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Now, that's a frightening thing. So, wait a second. The message I'm going out to declare, the Jews are going to be offended by it. And the Gentiles are going to say, you're a fool. So, then what's the point? What's the point is... Revealed in the next verse. That there are some among the Jews and some among the Gentiles who are going to believe by the grace of God. That's why it says, Christ crucified, verse 23. A stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called. Both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Ah. Oh. So what a wonderful thing that it is that we see unfolding here. Now again, I want to move on to, to the second thought for today. So firstly, we see they're speaking from the scriptures. Secondly, we see this. The sinful and sin, senseless nature of men. Now, now wrapped up in here also, much like it has been happening since, since the day of Pentecost, God was granting many miracles and signs to be done at the hands of the apostles. Even it happens here in, in verse 4 and in verse 14, it declares that Paul and Barnabas are apostles. And they are do, they, they're doing a great work and a great sign in that place. Those signs are simply there by the hand of the apostles to authenticate that, that Christ has risen in power. The power that he manifests in all of the healings that he carried out while he was alive, proving that he was the Messiah. People would say, he's dead and done, it's over. No, by his power and by his name, rise up and walk. By his power and his name, open up your eyes and see. That people would continue to recognize everyone had known and heard that Jesus had died. Now they're being told he has also risen from the dead. Well, how will that be proven? Well, to many hearts and minds, not entirely. But God was pleased yet to give some authenticating evidence that his power, living power, was still at work. But I want to go with me. Uh, so, so they're there. And, and they, they heal a man. And as they heal the man. Beginning in verse 8 and following. What do the people of, the, of Lystra begin to do? These are gods. Gods have come down to us. And, they, and the priests come out with garlands. Which, you know, they're going to they're gonna put these garlands on, on these men. 
They're, they're going to want to put them on some parade floats. They're going to want to gather around them all, the, all the, uh, the animals and sacrifice and worship these men. Now, for the apostles, they know very well. Did Paul, by his own power, heal this man? Not at all. And what's amazing is a lot of things have happened. In the previous chapter, when they were being maligned, when they were being contradicted, when they were being persecuted and run out of town, and even called names, reviled against, you know what they did not do? Rip their clothes and say, God help us. But here, when they see people making them out to be gods, making them out to be great, making them out to be something, there they rip their clothes, indicating, no, not at all. We are but men in the likeness of you. It says this, uh, verse 15, we are also men in like nature with you. That's important because as you read through, they're celebrating the gods have come down in the likeness of men. And they say, ah, uh -uh. we are just men in the likeness of you. There's nothing that makes us any different or any special, more special than you. And I want us to know that this is valuable because, well, these are apostles. Yeah. Privileged position of service. But prior to the grace of God being poured out on them, were they any more worthy? Any more deserving? Even after the grace of God was poured out on them, were they now perfect men? No, they still stumbled and struggled a lot along the way. It says this, listen to what it says, still in verse 15. And we bring you good news. We bring you this gospel. And listen, here, here's the good news. And the sad thing is, as they're, he's getting ready to declare to them the good news, they don't even get the whole message out here. But I just want you for a moment to listen to what it says. We bring you good news. And the good news, so often we talk about this, the good news is often laced with bad news. The bad news is everything that you're worshiping, everything that you're living for, useless, worthless, empty. Wait a second. How's that good news? The good news is turn from it. And I'm going to de declare to you what you turn from these things to. But in this, it's a strong statement that you turn from these vain things to a living God. Now, for the, for the term vain, it carries this sense. That, that which is empty, ineffectual, foolish, futile, useless, worthless. I know, a lot, I know a lot of people, you know, and I, and I just want to encourage you in a certain way. 
Some, uh, uh, some people, because of their, their upbringing and circumstances, have grown up in homes where there wasn't a good degree of, of love and, and comfort and care. And maybe as such, parents or others around them would often say, you're worthless. You're useless. You'll never amount to nothing. You're a waste of space. We've heard that those things have been said. But listen, when the grace of God comes to us, we own that. In our humanity, that's sort of a debil debilitating thing to hear, isn't it? But then when, when we understand the gospel as we have it in Christ, we say, it's okay that I'm worthless because God in Christ loves me. It's okay that I recognize as, as a sinner, I was worthless. I was ineffective. Everything I was living for was garbage. Because by the grace of God in Christ, I am now his treasured possession. And so listen, for the believer, they don't have to, they don't have to keep saying to themselves, Oh, I, 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 this happened to me when I was young and now, I, now forever, for the rest of my life, I will never have enough self-esteem and I'll... No, no, no. Stop trying to recover your self-esteem. The more you esteem Christ, the more you esteem God, and you understand the blessed position that by grace we have in Him, you're a new creation. Your hearts and minds are lifted up. You're no longer crushed under that weight of a sense of worthlessness. There, rather, you, we can tend to go... Say this, I glory in my weakness, in my inability, in my futility, in my worthlessness. Because you know what? God has chosen what is foolish in the world to confound the wise. God has chosen that which was of no account to men. What a grace of God that is ours in Christ. And so those things that sometimes crushed people down... We now say, no, those don't crush us. Those keep us on our knees with our eyes lifted to the heavens. So there is a sense in which he says this. Look, everything you are. Everything you do. Everything you think. Everything you desire. Everything you hope for. Everything you seek. Worthless. Empty. Futile. Whoa. Then what is there? I mean, you've just taken away everything that I thought meant something. Yes. Move it aside. And know this. There's a living God. Well, what about me? I mean, listen. All in this beginning presentation of the gospel, the only thing about them that he begins with is what? You're living in futility. Everything you're doing is off. I, I want to remind you of this and, and, and urge you to do this. Read through the book of Acts repeatedly. And listen to the gospel presentations that come over and over again. And then compare it with the modern methodologies. Now I don't want to overstate this. So don't miss me. All right? Don't mistake this. But. Do you know how many times that we have more gospel presentations in the book of Acts than in any other book of the Bible? 
Do you know how many times the book of Acts uses the word in, the, in gospel presentations, uses the word love? If you were to look at my hand, it might give you a hint. Not once. Now, I'm not saying we don't mention or speak of the love of God. But it doesn't begin with, you are loved. It begins with, God is God. That's where, you know, and, it be, and, and, and with that, God is God. And everything else is futile and vain and worthless. I mean, uh, I, love, I love the way that um, you, you, you remember the Shema passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, right? Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You know, just that, that powerful statement throughout the, throughout the Old Testament to the children of Israel. Behold your God. Uh, I, I love the way the old, old, prior to King James, the Geneva translation gives that word. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is onely. Which isn't a word we often use, and I did not make it up. It's in there. Uh, it, onely. Singular, incomparable, remarkable, absolutely distinct and different. Whereas men in their natural condition, what is it? Sinful and senseless, turn from these vain things. Ephesians 4.18 tells us of the condition of the natural man. Like we see in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Speaking of it, it says they are darkened in their understanding. As we also were when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. So as they're darkened in their understanding. It's that we're declaring the light of the gospel. But what? They don't, they don't get it. They don't see it. Alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous. And given over. To their own way. Romans chapter 1 says the same kind of thing about the condition of man. God made men. I guess when I unpack this, look at, look at how it, what it says in, in Acts chapter 14 verse 16. Turn from these vain things, it said, said to the true and living God. In the past, verse 16, generations, he allowed all nations to walk their own ways. You know what that's just it declared? God is singular and God is sovereign. It doesn't simply say, in the past, nations did whatever they wanted. You know, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everybody's the master of their own destiny. Everybody is the determiner of all that they do. Well, no, it says this. He allowed them. None can do anything they want to do unless God allows them. So even in men's rampant practice and participation in sinful lives, that is only by the permission of God. By stating it like that, it has value because it, it, it presents to them from the beginning that they understand this. They answer to someone. 
He gave them permission to do whatever they want. I mean, imagine a scenario such as this. A family has a teenage son or daughter, and they're going away for the weekend, and they give them permission to do whatever they want in the home while they're gone. What do you think is going to happen? A Bible study. Hallelujah. Uh, maybe. I mean, that's the hope. But uh, uh, there, there is this sense that's probably not what's going to happen more often than not. If there's no sense of accountability or no sense of responsibility, they've given, been granted that option and, and given that there. But listen, in the past, he allowed all generations to walk their own way. And remember, all of the nations, and I repeat this, and we're running out of time, but I want to say this very clearly. In the days of Genesis, how many religions were there in the Garden of Eden? Yeah, there's only belief in the one true God. As and when things had gotten very wicked and God brought Noah through the flood and his family. This is years and years after the Garden of Eden, right? And all humanity is starting over from the one family of Noah. How many gods did they believe in? One. And so there was only one belief system, one religion. As they continued to grow and multiply and even decided to defy God and build a city and stay together, how many religions were there? One. God himself divided them by confusing the languages and all of the nations then spread out from there. And when they left, they knew but one God. That God who had delivered their forefathers through the flood. That God who had provided for their sustenance. Blessed them abundantly so that they could build such a city. Confused their languages because they dared defy and disobey him. Separating them into different places and nations. But they all went away knowing there's one God. So listen. The history of every nation traces back ultimately to how many religions were there? How many gods were there? But now you go throughout the earth. You go to the ends of the earth. Nobody stumbles upon an isolated tribe who happens to be worshiping the God of the Bible. Men. As the scripture warns, darkened in their understanding, they make gods in their own image, in their own likeness. They worship the creation rather than the creator. And we continue to see that stumbling decline of men. But listen, it says this in Acts 17, and we'll get there at some point. The times of ignorance, God Overlooked, and I, and I wanted to note this as well. When ultimately God did decide, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna make a people for my name. The Scripture tells us He called Abraham. Abraham was an idolater, out of an idolatrous idolatrous family, out of an idolatrous nation. 
Why did he call him? Why didn't he go to some other, find the faithful one? Where's the faithful man? Yeah, God does what he pleases. And ultimately, are men in themselves faithful? Are men in themselves worthy? And, and so God let them go. But listen, now he commands, it says in Acts 17, now he commands all men everywhere. So he had marked out the children of Israel, and with them he revealed his law. With them he revealed, he, he began to interact with them and reveal his power and reveal his redemption. But with the rest of the nations, he left them to go their own way. But that is done. Now that Christ has come, he has, that, that message is to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. That message, that gospel that, that brings salvation is to go to all men, and it's a command. I, I don't want us to miss that. When you read even the gospel on the day of Pentecost, it says, repent and be baptized. When you read it in other places, it will say, repent and believe. All of those words are in the imperative. They are commands. I fear today we don't declare the gospel as a command. We don't say there is a God. And you know what? He's allowed you to have all of those experiences that you've had. That you've sought after and that you've pursued and you thought they were great and you thought they were good, but they're worthless. But he is the God, even as it says in here, who has made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in it. He is the living God and he commands. We turn it around and says, will you accept Jesus? Now, of course, there has to be an acknowledgement and, 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 and a recognition and an embracing of Christ as our Savior and Lord. For sure, let's not mistake that. But the reality is he commands us to repent and believe. He remains the sovereign one. And, and uh, I'm going to end with this. Lastly, verse 17. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness. For he did good by giving rains and heaven fruitful seasons. In other words, all the things that you've ever enjoyed have come from this sovereign God. And he says something else more here that I think we've got to be cautious with. It says this. Satisfying, end of verse 17, your hearts with food and goodness. Or food, even food and gladness. So, unbelievers, they have experienced satisfaction and gladness now listen this is important because in certain circles um, Christians have presented and I remember being in environments where this was prevented it, it presented it says listen everybody in the world has this like hole this like hole in them that only God can fill you know they're all they're all empty and unsatisfied and broken. And only God can mend them and fix that. And there are many times that God, by the convicting grace of the Spirit, brings an individual to a sense of emptiness and a brokenness, reveals to them the vanity and uselessness of all the things and pleasures and promises of the world. The Spirit does that. 
But listen, there are many people in the world who are very happy with where they are. They are very content with where they are. You know, you come up to them, you know, you know that emptiness you feel? What? You know that kind of abiding loneliness and sadness that you can't escape from? What are you talking about? I'm good. And now, the scripture actually says God gives them even the benefits of this world that to a degree experientially provides satisfaction and gladness. So you're not going that, to, that, that's not going to always work with people to say, yeah, you know, that emptiness, I can feel that. No, 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 forget that emptiness. Look, all of the joy, all of the gladness that you're feeling, all of the satisfaction, brothers and sisters, that will come to an end. That's all temporary. That's all fleeting. But there is a satisfaction. There is a joy that transcends, that is eternal, that abides. It's not dependent on circumstances, not dependent on the ebb and flow of things. I tell you this, for all those who are apart from a living faith in God through Christ Jesus, all joy and all satisfaction will come to an end. Let that warning stand. And our hope is only in Christ. We're going to have to end there because the clocks are all running fast today. Four simple thoughts we've considered. These men came forward and continued in constantly speaking from or speaking forth the scriptures. Secondly, we saw that this reveals the sinfulness and senselessness of man's nature. Thirdly, it reveals the singular and sovereign God. Fourthly, it reminds us that God is the source of all, all goods, all goodness, and our hope in his grace. So let's pray. Lord, just thank you that we have the privilege to listen to your word. I thank you for these dear saints who, uh, who have an interest and a hunger. And our desire is to recognize ways which uh, we ourselves, through our own culture, through our Americanisms and whatever, ha have not seen with clarity the totality of all that you say. If there are ways in which we have um, begun to adjust the methods and adjust the message, oh God, we thank you that you've given us your word that is that call that brings us back. Back to your truth, back to your scriptures, that we will walk in your way in accordance with your word. Lord, challenge us through these things. And help us to learn these lessons from Lystra. In Jesus' name, amen.